I want an opinion from you if you are happy to share it mm-hmm. on whether standards of living and quality life today are better than they were 20 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Are they better or have they improved or are they the same, neutral, no change, or are they worse? Mm. Just your gut reaction on the world. No one has gut, a complete. Gut reaction is there. They're significantly improved over previous, but it def- it all depends on how you define quality yeah. of life. Okay, so that's the good first thing. So how would you define quality of life? It's what are the key fun. things? Mm, are there sort of, two or three things that are really important? All of those level one comforts or, you know, the basic shelter, food, all that sort of stuff is covered. Okay, it's like level one Maslow's, yep. Yeah, yeah, then other sort of human needs like the need for connection, family, meaningful work, all that sort of stuff is kind of going at level two, which is where that's more subjective, I would say. So if we're okay. going back to... So do you think level two is improved? Level one, quite obvious. Yeah. So it seems to improve. Gut, gut reaction. in society. Yeah, gut reaction on because you automatically assume sort of those comforts and where we've come from previously, we would be improved. But f- for level level two, if you define it like that, this is a bit arbitrary. But is I think, um, I think it's a good distinction, actually. Yeah, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. Uh, not sure. I'm not sure, but I would say we sort of as we change, our problems sort of shift, regardless of what time we're in. We sort of just adopt new problems. But I'm not. That's the that's as deep as I've been able to go before this. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. It's a difficult question. Mm. And the reason why I want to pick this out, there's a quote from the book, Out of Our Minds, forgive me and temporarily make sure I read this correctly. And where was it? It was, no, no, no. Where are you? It was basically the idea from, from Ken in the book where he's sharing a quote that quality of life, Sorry, standards of living have improved, but quality of life is lower. What's your... It's, it's not a quote from him, sorry. Uh, someone, mm. uh, I can't remember who it was. And I'll unpack it a little bit with what was taken from the book. So he talks about the personal development movement began in the 1940s and mushroomed mm-hmm. in the 1960s in America and then Europe. Personal development is like, you know, think Tony Robbins, right? It came out of declining religious significance, according to Carl Rogers, the famous psychologist. And then furthermore, there are huge costs to being cut off from spirituality and feeling. And then in one YouTube video I found doing research for this, Ken Robinson references Carl Jung, another very famous uh, psychologist, psychotherapist, who said that there was not a single patient whose ailments could not be attributed to being cut off from religion. And then Ken Robinson kind of speculates or tries to translate that idea of religion is there's not so much organized religion he thinks Jung is talking about, but spirituality, the connection to their sense of spirit. And the deeper, that deeper idea that is behind a lot of organized religion rather than going to mass is the problem or going to the shrine or something like that. Mm. And uh, that is the assertion. And when we get into the TED talk, we'll go a bit deeper into this kind of cut off from feeling idea. Mm. 
but the theme in that education, university, workplace has so often been treating human beings as if they're cut off from their feelings and concentrating on like the brain. I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that's been made over the last. Categorically, especially in Western society, but I elsewhere. This is a quote from Anthony DeMello around all cultures are essentially the same once you get the first layer of culture off. Because the same things are kind of happening everywhere once you get beneath the first layer. Like the very, like they eat a bit differently, they look a bit different, they say hello differently, they have different mar marriage expectations, whatever. But underneath that, the deeper experience of life is, is very consistent. It's, it's as someone who traveled all around the world speaking and running retreats and interacting with people on a very deep level. So I think there's probably a lot of weight we could take out of that observation, even though it wasn't ours. I'm currently of the opinion, yes, it's very hard to know if with quality of life, standards of living is black and white. Standards of living in that quote is basically referring to what you said, Maslow, the basic shelter, food, mm. welfare, all that stuff. Technology. Technology. Quality of life is another thing altogether. It's very ambiguously defined in our secular social systems because our secular, meaning non-religious and therefore usually as a result, even though it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be coupled together, non-spiritual institutions. There's no spiritual flavor to them. If you've ever read a government website, it's abundantly clear. It's boring, most boring shit you've ever seen. <laughs> There's no acknowledgement of that part of people's humanity that's kind of outsourced to other parts of society to meet those needs. It's never, it's not really organized in, especially in Western society through governments. There's can references I, to God. Yeah. Mm, sorry. I was just going to say, can I, if I can throw a bit of a curveball at, well, maybe not a curveball, but how do you define spirituality? Just sort of. Spirituality at first seems to be a word that defines all the deeper significant things that we can't define about life <laughs> beliefs around who we are why we're here you, you know what is the nature of our existence what happens before we die after we die who create who slash what created us how does that reality reflect our lives i can give you very direct examples about it being manifested i was talking to a friend today who reflecting on how at a young age she's very into like alan watts and stuff like that and how one day it popped up on her feed out of nowhere. And all right, there's algorithms, but also you look at like the whole Steve Jobs idea of you connect the dots looking backwards. You see that certain things, this way I reflect on the thousand doors idea. You see that certain things just had to have been by some other force other than pure chance. Because the specificity and the detail of which things had to coordinate at a certain time just defies logic, but then also a sense of calling you feel at times. We come back to ideas of the compass, hmm. your internal compass, intuition. We've talked about that a lot before. I, I reflect on a lot of those coming from a very spiritual place. In a lot of the books around spirituality, there's some fantastic stuff on this. I've recommended to you, Luke, The Celestine Prophecy. Mm pretty much the number one on this area, very relatable and digestible, not too fluffy. I know a lot of spirituality can be a bit full on for people because it's so, because it's so, I guess, deep. 
makes people uncomfortable. It's kind of like it's been cut out of education. Mm. Except for some of the religious, religious kind of themed schools. But I think all due respect to organized religion, it's normally a maybe reduced version of it. I think most of our organized religions were seeded a long time ago to help reduce the big spiritual ideas down into something that people could kind of at least meet halfway. This is a very dense topic. I acknowledge mm -hmm. that. And I know we've just kicked it off, <laughs> but like it's probably almost the end of the episode too. But I don't want to try and push this on you. I, I reflect on when I say quality of life is lower. It's actually hard for me to know what quality of life was like 30 years ago, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. There's no measures. What I will say though, quality of life is not where it should be. That's the more important question. Quality of life is not to me nowhere near where it should be. People are very clearly cut off from a sense of, uh, true, I think, independence and freedom on a more existential level. They're not really free to determine themselves in the way we make out that you can go anywhere, be anything. There's psychological deeper complexities to that are really fucked up by, and I'm trying to stop swearing on the podcast after listening to the last episodes. It's one thing I want to improve on. I'm going to stop swearing. I don't think it suits. I don't think it adds anything, but it's one thing we've really bottled. I think the way we are conditioned through most child rearing practices, education and everything. And, and Robinson touches on that. We've got to treat the whole child, right? You've got to look at them at the reality they are. And there is a spiritual side. However you want to define that you cannot deny that it exists no matter your definition. And there's no way that the way it's catered, there's no way it's catered to in any capacity now. And it's such a sin. So when people talk about university, whether they should go to university and all these things, and they're having a very practical conversation about where they're going to be in their career, the factor, things that no one really thinks about is that it's hard for them to expand their thinking to realize that these institutions are only concerning themselves with a tiny fraction of our lives and our needs. Okay. The reason why like, I kind of become more cynical about these systems as we go, because I realize how small a part of the picture they're actually really appealing to. There's no spiritual side to university, for example, or college. Yeah, if you want to talk about the career things, and this is the hilarious nature of it, if you want to talk about the career things, the spiritual things are actually where it's at. I don't know if you know who Eric Cantona is, the famous soccer player. Oh, yeah. yeah. Manchester United, mm -hmm. fiery character. But he used to describe football as art. Mm -hmm. And he used to see like the way a player moves on the pitch as if, as if they were brush strokes on a painting and everyone used to think what the hell's wrong. But it's, it's almost like the art and the creativity is a step along this cycle of a spiritual thing kind of being turned into human uh, production and creativity is almost the conduit. I think there's something incredibly spiritual about creativity. That's why I think it's born, it, we're born with it just like animals have this incredible intuition to fly halfway across a country. How do they know when, you know, is it instinctive? Is it, is it instinct a sign of something greater? This is just, you know, it's like, what's going on? This doesn't get talked about, but in a hundred years, they'll look back at this time and think, 
wow, the reason why that was so screwed up, the reason why there was so much suicide, mental health, existential angst, was because they because they had completely cut society off from spiritual things, interconnectedness. Um, this is, you know, people don't talk to each other about deep things. Families mm. leave things unspoken and die not knowing things about each other. People are not confident, uh, comfortable telling people when they're going through a difficult time. It's unnatural. So I don't really buy that we have uh, whatever the quality of life is compared to the past. I want to conclude this episode by saying uh, there's no way it's good enough. There's no way it's good enough. I will not keep going. I want to keep these short, obviously. So apologies to cut off a, a pretty intense topic there. Right. <laughs> but we will we will be back tomorrow with more unpacking of Ken Robinson and starting to talk about his three big TED Talks over about four episodes, including the most viewed tomorrow, the most viewed TED Talk of all time by Ken Robinson. So excited for that. Just remember to jump into the show notes and find the link Everything Joe. There you can sign up to the Doorman newsletter and get a consolidated summary once a week of the podcast. Thank you, Luke. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Joe. Today we're going to unpack what makes Ken Robertson's uh, TED Talk, the most viewed TED Talk of all time, and the magic behind it, which also sends a very powerful message about education, and then start the next couple of With Joe Weeby podcast episodes on his other two TED Talks too. I'm very excited, Luke. I showed you this TED Talk for the first time about a week ago. What was your initial reaction? Do you remember? It was my initial reaction it was quite hilarious like he's just <laughs> fantastic presenter and also quite funny but also obviously very insightful i'm sure we're going to go into why yeah exactly and it's just such a great it's just like it's called do schools kill creativity and there should be a link to a blog post in the description and a link to the but you just youtube it or google it no matter what time period you're in i'm sure it'll be up there 72 million views in 2022 who knows <laughs> in the future and I just want to unpack it. So there's a couple of killer stories he uses, right? The first is about the young girl drawing God. There's a young girl, a story he tells young girls, drawing God when asked by a teacher, you know, what are you doing? Girl says, drawing God. Teacher says, how are you drawing God? No one knows what God looks like. She goes, they're about to. (laughs) (laughs) He goes from that and he has another story about his son. What was it that his son played? Yeah, his son played Joseph in a play and they were really happy about that. And then they're, they're moving overseas and they're, they're moving away. And the son's, you know, devastated because he's got a girlfriend. He's 16 years old. And he says, but I'll never see so-and-so again. And they go, we're actually quite happy about that. We, <laughs> yeah. thought, we thought so-and-so was, was terrible. He goes, you know, my son was 16 at the time. Actually, I guess he was, he was 16 everywhere. And, you know, he said, I'll never find another girl. Like, like, you know, like he cracks everyone up with that one. And then, and then he proceeds, right, to tell these stories. And the first thing is that his storytelling ability is just, like, unparalleled. Mm. You, you're watching this TED Talk. It's the ultimate example of an art, artistic masterpiece because you cannot see the brush strokes. It's a 20-minute talk, and he does talk, obviously, about specific points around education, but he d- devotes a large amount of time to just telling these stories. And he's incredibly funny and he looks so natural. It looks like he's just got up there and he's making it up on the spot. Yeah. The big right. thing, sorry to cut you off, is no, 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 watch, no, when, no, you, no. when you watch a lot of TED Talks, 
that can be a little bit robotic or, or maybe not robotic, but just, you know, a bit tense because obviously it's quite a tense situation. But he was just like going pacing up and down. It was like you couldn't sort of you, – you're always waiting to find the next moment. You know, he just had yes. you captivated. He holds you. There is not a mm. dull moment. There is no moment where your brain switches off. These are all the things that are really hard to notice when you're watching it. Okay, but then he does slide in his points. Mm. And – he really talks about creativity. He says, I believe that everyone is creative and that we're educated out of creativity. He says, we need to, so he's presenting all these arguments about children and why he's showing these stories about the young girl drawing God, you know, the sun and moving away. And there's a couple others in there because then he, he then amalgamates them to a point. He says, children aren't afraid to be wrong. And when they're presented with a challenge, they'll have a go. Because you can't be creative, you can't be original if you're not willing to be wrong. And this is something that immediately draws that. We, I did this to you a couple of episodes ago. We talked about creativity. He draws that contrast between the playfulness of children and their willingness to be wrong and therefore their creativity and how we are so afraid to be wrong, so afraid to say the wrong thing on the podcast or in a meeting at work or in an email, that we don't develop anything original, and it's killing us. It is the precise opposite thing to innovation. He said, the other point he crystallizes here is that we need to radically rethink intelligence, which we also discussed, right? He, he points to three things. He says, when we think about intelligence, it's diverse, it's dynamic, and it's distinct. In other words, there's many different types of intelligence and school zeroes in on a very narrow definition right and it's 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 really constrained and it lacks a lot of breadth and it's just a very tragic kind of view of you know how we were but when i was going over like what makes his ted talk so good and when i was unpacking you know researching behind it he talks about the value of humor and stories And he says that if people aren't paying attention, it doesn't really matter what you're saying because they're not going to be able to take anything away from it. And it's such a beautiful combination. It's not just storytelling everyone knows is valuable. Everyone appreciates humor, but I think under, under respects it or they feel like they can't bring it. But he combines them and he combines them like no one else I think I've seen almost maybe outside of like actual comedians, um, like apart from actual comedians who are very good at that too, but we normally don't think about it. It's, it's so powerful. He just leans on what works and then he does, he's very precise and minimalistic with, with the points he wants to make instead of trying to, I think if I was doing a TED talk, I'd be like, how much can I squeeze into 20 minutes? It's probably what this podcast is, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just so powerful. And then here's a tricky question for you, Luke. Let's see if you've let's see if you're on your A game today. What is the statement that's made by his speaking style itself? What sort of powerful statement do you really think that is, the way he's able to deliver when you consider what he's talking about? So if you consider his subject matter, what's mm -hmm. his subject matter? What's he actually talking about? 
It's talking about education. Education, creativity, right? And then what's the delivery style? And he's trying to embody what you should or like he's trying to embody that attitude that we're lacking or that exactly. we that we lose when we grow up. Exactly. He's all the things that you do not associate with like the conventional teacher mold, for example. That's such a good point. Yeah, it's like he's a comedian, but he's making a he's making these He actually gets through. Mm. We're talking about the most think about all the TED talks that have been done. The most competitive talk thing ever, right? And this guy is number one. And so the delivery is everything. But also I think I think another thing is that the subject matter. So this topic does resonate with so many people. It is just such a big, heavy topic and so many people care about it. But the thing I notice a lot is that there's a lot of people saying, big, big flipping the bird to the education system, but then kind of recreating the mistakes it makes somewhere else. Yeah. Like they'll do a very, it, I give another example because I'm still, you know, helping Paul Rouse with this book around laughter and joy and everything. And I was like, oh, okay, there's probably some good scientific stuff behind laughter. So I started reading these research papers about the positive effects of laughter and everything. And I just could not read them because that was so boring. <laughs> and I texted him straight away. I said, you know, what's pretty ironic scientific papers about laughter that are boring as batshit. Mm, it's like the opposite of what <laughs> it's the opposite of the actual subject matter. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> As I was, just struck me, and the people writing this stuff would have no idea. They're intellectualizing, running laughter through this rubric, through this blueprint that obviously fits this <laughs> system. And I wonder if they paused at any point to think about the sheer irony of making laughter boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing you reading an academic paper about laughter. Like, what the... <laughs> and Ken Robinson follows suit with all the other people we've done on this series and that he kind of shits on academics. But he, he also used to be one, so it's even funny. It's almost like Taleb is kind of one as well. That's, that's just the nature of it, and I highly recommend it. Like we've deconstructed. I just wanted to make that point around you have to, if you're going to work on these things, you have to demonstrate the better way. It's actually a point around leadership. You can't just speak about the better way. You must demonstrate it. Mm. Yeah. And when he says, well, when he makes a point that we're sort of educated out of creativity, it's one of those points that sort of hit you yeah. straight. Like because you some that you can think back to when you're a kid potentially a lot With more. All your dreams. Of, yeah, you just and it's one that it's it is it makes you reflect a little bit on your own experience growing up it's just a powerful point it is super powerful there's an even the, the, the biggest and juiciest scariest story from that whole ted talk is actually we're going to deconstruct it on its own tomorrow i just feel like it deserves its own episode especially around this theme of like adhd and things like that yeah. and the immorality of that so that's going to be tomorrow's episode on the with joe Eby podcast so luke and i'll be back for that but in the meantime remember keep following along every day and also there's a newsletter with a consolidated summary once a week. You can just go to the show notes, click the link that says Everything Joe and sign up to the Doorman newsletter for that once a week. See you tomorrow, Luke. See you tomorrow, Joe.
How is ADHD used to imprison young geniuses? Welcome back to the With Joe Weeby podcast, unpacking Ken Robinson and his TED Talk, the most viewed TED Talk of all time at this point in time, until Luke does his TED Talk one day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do schools c- kill creativity? At the end, this story makes me cry when he when he's almost cry when he's telling it on the every time I watch the video. He tells the story of a girl in 1930 who was having trouble in class, seven-year-old girl. And she's taken the, the, te- the teachers, the school says, there's something wrong with this girl. And so the mother has to take her to a doctor to get her assessed and the doctor's doing all these tests and everything like that, evaluates her and then lets her go. And he says, all right, the girl's name is Jillian. He says, all right, Jillian, wait outside. I'm going to talk to your mother for a bit. So Jillian goes outside And when the doctor does that, he starts playing music. And while he's talking to the mother, Jillian has gotten up. They open the door when they're done talking and they see her out there dancing. This girl who was irritable, not able to concentrate in class, always getting in trouble. And they look at her dancing. And the doctor turns to the mother and says, Jillian isn't sick, Mrs. Lynn. She's a dancer. Take her to dance school. Years later, Ken Robinson speaking to this lady, Julianne Lynn, because he used to be involved in the ballet and London Ballet, whatever it was. And he says, and what happened then? She goes, I went to dance school. Mom took me to dance school. She goes, I can't tell you how wonderful it was. For the first time in my life, I found all these people who were like me. <laughs> he makes the point that some people think through dancing. And we shouldn't disrespect that. Dancing is associated with improving ability in all these other areas. Julian Lynn went on to, she, she, was, she had a ballet career, I think, but then went a dance career, but then went on to be a choreographer, started her own company. And then she met Andrew Lloyd Webber, who's very famous as a, as a uh, for musical theater. Phantom of the Opera and Cats were amongst the shows she worked on and choreographed the dance. Two of the most successful musicals of all time. I saw Phantom of the Opera for the first time when I was 14 with my dad and mum. And it's, one, it's my favourite story of all time. It's one of my favourite experiences I have with my dad. And that's one of the, I'm one of the millions of lives who Gillian Lynn, who went on to become a millionaire, touched with her art. And Robinson says in the TED Talk, in another generation, she would have been put, told she had ADHD and and just like put on pills but like i don't think it had been invented yet wow he's like they hadn't invented it yet because she couldn't sit still in class and like he just he just makes that point like it's so powerful so powerful and just so sad Mm. like it's so it makes so much sense it's so simple and like the simplicity of that is like, and, and you and I know a lot of people, I could, I could list them, but I don't want to mention them by name, but I could list the people I know who've been given an ADHD diagnosis. They tried to tell, they tried to, they told my mom to get my brother tested once, my youngest brother, mm. many years ago. And, and one of our good friends is now an incredible high achiever. You know, he, he, they told his mom too, and, and she resisted. Mm. And, and thank God she did. The guy now runs 
you know, huge companies and it's helping other people outside of that. And, you know, I just, I shudder to think it is, is to me a crime on a international scale, what we do in education, like the system we have. If you think about how many lives have been broken, how many Jillian Lins never grew up because they were put in this, 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 this cage. Mm. Not only that, you have also people believing that there's something wrong with them. It's the complete opposite. It's not just that they didn't hit the heights they were meant to hit. It's that they instead, yeah, internalized, became insecure, anxious. Mm. Mm. It's just devastating. The distinction between there's something wrong with you, you might need to take medication versus you might just be doing the wrong. This might not be suited to, to you. There's something else exactly. for you to go after. It's, it's exactly. such a simple conversation. but The idea that there's something wrong with you because you don't want to sit in a box all day. You know, Taleb, to go back to Taleb, who we talked about a while ago, he's like, procrastination is useful. It's actually a natural impulse. And I think of it like hunger or something like that, where it's, it's instead of hunger telling you when you haven't eaten, it's trying to tell you when something's not a good use of your time. <laughs> it's almost like it's trying to push you in the right direction. It's almost like the universe. I think of it as the universe designing us to push us in the right direction. Mm. That's why people always thrive when they find what they're interested in. And what not, does not interest you, you procrastinate on. It's not amazing, just like hunger is not incredibly precise an indicator of how much food you should eat, right? Like editing podcast episodes, you want to procrastinate. But, you know, it, it's, it's it, no wonder you don't want to study. Why would you want to force, for, go over all these facts, information, and you're not really learning and you can't see the relevance of it? Mm. That's a good filter. The natural impulse is pretty much, it's, it's quite accurate. Mm. What do you think about, I think we were talking to, at one point, you are explaining some, I'm not sure if it's spiritual ideas, but that feeling you get is like that compass. I remember you were explaining it, it to compass. me, like, for example, the... when you feel alive or that surge of energy doing something, that's a sign. Well, that can be interpreted as a sign that you're on the right path, for example. Exactly. I, I really believe that. I really believe that. And... You know, the power of that story, I'll just never forget it. It's one of the most incredible. important stories for education. And yeah, it's, what more can you say? Mm. What more can you say? Well, we'll, we'll keep going with Ken Robinson tomorrow. We'll be unpacking one of his other TED Talks, which is, uh, yeah. This one's on how to escape education's death valley. Sorry, I had to remind myself. It's the awkward <laughs> pause. And uh, just remember to follow along in the, the show notes. You can find the link or the description, everything Joe, and sign up for the doorman newsletter. Get a once a week summary of the podcast. Thank you very much, Luke. I look Thank forward you, to Joe. unpacking this again tomorrow. Welcome back to the With Joe Eby podcast. I want to ask about human potential, Luke. And I want to see if we can think of maybe at least one, but one, or one, two, or three factors a person can't control that sets a limit on their potential. 
So in other words, like you can control how hard you work out or something like that, right? Or again, how hard you study, mm. what skills you develop. But what are what are the parameters? What are like you what's the ceiling? What's the floor? What's the side in terms of like our human potential? What sets that? Like genet for example, genetics is genetics one. It depends on the yeah, it depends on the domain because I'm automatically thinking about it's this this ties into your own beliefs your own belief systems about what's possible as well. Well, that's 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 the interesting thing to unpack. Mm. Your belief system around what's possible is the thing that has the biggest impact on what you will achieve and do in my opinion. How how would you ever know right. what your true potential is? Well, I mean, the, the case is that it's unknowable. Mm. The case is that it's unknowable. So, you know, like how intelligent you can be in a given area, how much of that do you think would be genetic if you had to place like a percentage on it? It's very difficult to quantify. Like, could you or would you? Uh, I, w- is, I would it be... Have a, does it have a role? I would be inclined not to go down that path because it... Like, for example, it's an easy cop-out for me to be like, I can't. Uh, maybe I'm not genetically <laughs> yeah, smart enough to go down level. this. You know what I mean? It opens all yeah. those doors to being, to sort of limiting yourself, really. But yeah. I, I do that naturally. Still, Like, for example, there's always that sort of a thing that keep wants to keep you where you are, which we've yes. talked about before. yes. But in terms of human potential, we don't know the, we don't know the upper limits and I don't want to, I don't want to know. Personally, I don't want to know. Oh, wow. What a powerful attitude. I almost think that that is the, the way. That's probably how I think of it too. I treat it as like, it's, it's not limitless, but it's, it's unknowable. Mm. Therefore, any knowledge of it is probably counterintuitive. Good example, make this more grounded. Mm. If most CEOs or entrepreneurs knew how hard it was to go on the journey of their business project, they probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> like sometimes too much knowledge is actually counterintuitive. All right. Like there's people who know too much, like, oh no, my mate tried to start a company out of uni, didn't go well. Like, I'm not going to make that mistake. That's an example of potentially counterintuitive knowledge. Because very situational, you might profit in a lot of indirect ways, even if you didn't make money, for example, you know, you changed ventures or something. So, you know, sometimes too much knowledge is actually not useful. It's or just a diminishing return. I'm teasing at it because we're still in the theme of Ken Robinson, in case anyone's new to the podcast and unpacking one of his other TED Talks. The guy did three. Throwing, throwing shade, Ken, wherever you are, you're the, you're the man, you're the goat. Uh, and this one was called... I always keep forgetting. What's this one called? Escaping Education's Death Valley. That's right. And I think the big points I want to take out of it, that human beings are naturally different and diverse. Right? For example, But I don't think society is built this way. For example, I don't think airlines know this. <laughs> when you're on an airline, your biggest fear is like, you know, someone that stinks or is, you know, too big coming, sitting in the seat. You know, everything's designed for everyone to be like, everyone's the same. (laughs) Yeah. Problem is people aren't the same, but we kind of, I think the last century has been about designing things as if everyone was the same. I think that's like been our social, that's how been our approach to society. 
we're seeing the consequences of it. We've got this mass drive towards conformity and everything. The second point I want to take from it is curiosity is the engine of achievement. Right? Curiosity is the engine of achievement. That's come up a bunch of times in the podcast. It's big with Da Vinci. It's big with Einstein. Everyone kind of goes all about curiosity and interest, not so much about your natural God-given brain power and IQ. There's a very funny story our friend, of our friend Scott, who in year 10, we had a book. And you, I don't know if you ever did this, Luke, but the teacher is assigning you homework, but you can see it's, this, it's that topic, then the set of questions that are at the end of the book. Hmm. So if you just go ahead to the next topic, you'll see the questions at the end, therefore the, the homework next week. And Scott being, you know, diligent, he was a bit of a troublemaker, he says, most of the time at school, but he went ahead and did some of the further weeks. And the teacher was checking one day how to look at his book and it's like, oh, you weren't meant to do that yet. He goes, oh, I already, I already did it. Like, I don't need to do this work in class, sitting there not doing anything. The teacher's wondering why, inspects his book. He goes, I already did it. He goes, you weren't supposed to go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just a, it's a funny story. It's, it kind of sums up our schooling system in most parts because it's the idea of like conformity. And that you've got to, you know, you've got to go at the teachers, you've got to go at this pace. Even if you're trying to excel and be proactive, in many cases, not all cases, of course, but in many cases, you're just brought back in line. So it's like we have so much of that in education and we kill curiosity. So that's the second point. And the third point is that life is inherently creative. We create our lives as we go through it. It isn't linear. That's a very powerful idea from Ken. Life is inherently creative. We create our lives as we go through it. It isn't linear. For example, I used to think of creativity as like people who could paint, create uh, movies and music. <laughs> that's probably the way most people view creativity. Like that's the creative stuff and then everything else is like, Science is this, math is this. But I, I, stop, I sort of think about creativity now as this all-encompassing thing. Like it really is probably, yeah, one of the essential things of being human, I think, is that creative thing. We talked about this in, I think it was a beautiful episode, I think, mm. maybe about a week ago, by the time people are listening to this, you, how you thought about it, right? And whether you or are not, are you or are you not creative? But essentially, any, anything unique that you will do will come from creative instincts, right? That intuition you have that's internal will show up in a different way than anyone else's would. Arguably something you're meant to do. And like we have the need to create children, you know, we have the need to create things, see the things we've created. We have the itch to share what we think and stuff online a lot these days, people who are writing, podcasting, all these things. And so there's that beautiful element to life and you know so much of it is just shut off mm. so those are the three big ideas from that right Luke the point around you know intelligence the human beings are naturally diverse right like there's different types of intelligence we shouldn't everything locks into one view really there's multiple forms and a lot of people struggle to recognize their own intelligence Intelligence is almost a, a bad word, to be honest. It's almost like people, 
struggle to recognize their giftedness. Have you, have you, do you see that at all? I see that when people, for example, when they're at school or when they're at university, if they're not doing well, or maybe they're not enjoying it, they can assume that they're not like, just because they're not good at that, they're not going to be good at something else. I mean, I've, I've talked about this previously when I was at school before I started actually trying, I won't lie, <laughs> but like you, you feel, you can feel sometimes sort of hopeless or that you're not going to succeed or you get those natural feelings if you're not doing well in that specific domain that you're talking about. So I think that could be, and you are right in terms of how specific a lot of these things are, especially university degrees are narrowing in on one domain and studied in a very particular way. So if you don't fit into that box, then you can feel not fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. That's why so many people revolt years later against these things. Mm. They realize the feeling and people in there aren't intending to do it, of course, but the people misunderstand that the, they say, don't take this to heart, but conditioning happens an astro level, you know, subconscious mm. level. Not, uh, I can't just say, Luke, don't take this to heart, but I think you're an average co-host, <laughs> right? Oh, no, you're no. Like, but oh, I, he but said I, I didn't, yeah, don't take it to heart. But I said, don't take it to heart. It just yeah. doesn't, it just doesn't work that way, but it's not <laughs> even that. It's, it's a system you go through for years conditions you. Mm. It's a system you go through for years, decades, or you grow up in. He mm. tells a story at the end of this talk. Death Valley is actually a place, I think, in California. And it's a place where nothing ever grows and it, and it never rains there. So there's no life. But he says once in, I think it was 2004, 2005, it actually poured heavily in Death Valley. Right? Rain came down out of nowhere. It was an anomaly. And then out of the ground came all this greenery, shrubbery and everything just kind of came up all of a sudden. He says, we're living in Death Valley. There's seeds of potential underneath the ground. It's just that we're choosing not to water them. The hard thing to compute is that how many people think they're creative? How many people don't think they're creative? Probably most people. Therefore, if you think you're not creative, what sort of work choices are you going to make? What sort of jobs are you going to go for? What sort of career pathways are you going to go down? What sort of lifestyle are you going to lead? And how's that then going to reinforce itself over time, making it harder and harder to change? How many people you think really think of themselves as creative in our society? Not, not too many. I mean, we established earlier that I didn't even have a good definition for what creativity was outside well, of what you, you were mentioning. There, well, um, there you go. So if it's, it's got to be most people. Yeah. So this way it says like Death Valley. It starts with that belief as well about whether or not you are <laughs> creative. That is at the core. Mm. It will never come up in a job interview. No one will ever tap you on the back one day and ask if you think you're creative. 
no one at school ever, they'll test you on everything else. They never assess with, do you think you're creative? No one your whole life, your children, your wife, no one challenges you to think of yourself as a creative person unless you're lucky or you do something that just happens to fit with the definition. And it just has a widespread calamitous social effect. It's weird. I'll give you an example just while I'm thinking of it. I remember being always having this sort of like that calling that you're describing in terms of creativity, like creating YouTube videos, for example. It always appealed to me and I never knew why. Like I could never understand why. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do something like that and create create content or create? And then I was like, that's not me. Like that's not the kind of person that I am was always the story I told myself. Wow. It's true. And then... And then I discovered that feeling create doing the podcast, for example. It's like, oh wait, you can do you can do this stuff. It's just one step at a time. It doesn't matter if you're doesn't even matter if you're bad at it. But if you're enjoying it, just Wow. Just do it. I thought that example was relevant. Wow. No, what a great note to finish on. Thank you so much for sharing that, Luke. Oh good. <laughs> it's powerful. Hopefully someone listening flicks that switch themselves. Mm. Having heard that, I hope so. We'll be back for one more episode on the great Ken Robinson, the amazing, amazing man tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget, you can go to the link in the description or show notes, everything Joe, and sign up for the Doorman newsletter. You get a summary once a week instead of having to listen to us ramble <laughs> every day because I know Luke's quite boring. <laughs> you, can just get, you just get that summary and it's just written there, the biggest takeaway. So that's, that's fun. We'll be back tomorrow to discuss the human crisis. God, it's powerful stuff. Smitty. It is. And this, that, that dated back a while ago as well. Like it's crazy. So maybe it like, started back then. Yeah. Like I, but I never could be like, I always thought it was un like it was something else that other people do. Yeah. I don't know why as well. It's like, I'm not, I don't know. Fuck. It's a weird one. Mm. So true. It's powerful stuff. Oh yeah. (laughs) All right. I can tell this is important to you, Joey. You know it. The emotion. You know it. I love it. There's another funny thing where he pokes fun at the need for alternative education. I said to someone this week, you know, I'm going to stop calling constitution alternative education. I'm going to stop calling it real education. (laughs) (laughs) Alternative (laughs) education. That automatically makes you think it's like some fucking wacko. Yeah, exactly. It's like wacko shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like alternative, like don't go down the traditional path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. All right, just reflecting on how we're going to do this episode. One sec. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. All right, cool, cool, cool. This is pretty funny. Uh, Let me just check these notes. Okay, I think I've got it all here. Welcome back to the With Joey B podcast, unpacking Ken Robinson's last TED Talk, Bring on the Learning Revolution. I'm going to start with a story about a fireman and a school teacher, Luke. Sound interesting? Sounds interesting. In the in the TED talk, Robinson's telling a story about a, a, a boy who wanted to be a fireman when he was at school. And everyone 
kind of laughed at him. His teacher, one of the teachers, a lot of the teachers, but a lot of, one of the teachers said it was kind of ridiculous idea that he should go down a proper career path that of being a fireman was like a childish child's kind of dream. You know, it's like kind of get out of that stage, get out of the, the fireman astronaut stage and pick a, pick a profession, something with, you know, distinction and honor in it. Anyway, years later, that teacher and his wife were in like a fire and this fireman actually saved their lives. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Is it the TED Talk? <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. It's just like the most ironic freaking story. It's like it's a call to action, right, for people to think broader about other people's interests and stuff. I try not to fall into the trap, but sometimes you think you want to encourage everyone to be able to you know, create you don't necessarily, I don't think of it and constitution as everyone's got to create something big. I'm much more interested in helping everyone be more authentic. The thing is, a lot of your authenticity would actually lead you doing something at a greater scale or depth in the world just by the nature of being who you are on the ultimate level. That's such a powerful you would, statement. You'd want to spread your impact to as many people as you could not just create something. And, and this way, I mean, like, you know, one thing we talk about in this episode title is the human crisis. He, he unpacks a couple of things in this TED talk, the linearity problem, because he sees some ads. <laughs> this is pretty funny. He sees some ads saying that college begins in kindergarten, right? He saw it in a reform memo. So like the way they're trying to fix education is by, you know, getting preparation earlier for college. He's like, no, it doesn't. College doesn't begin in kindergarten. <laughs> like, what is this nonsense? And it's like now there's competition to get into kindergarten. And this is a couple of years ago he did this talk. It's like, so people are like interviewing children for kindergarten. <laughs> he goes, imagine that. Imagine that interviewing a three-year-old. And you go, yeah. Drew some, drew some pictures, <laughs> you know, played in the mud. You haven't done much. <laughs> So, so, all right, so it's the nonsense, right, of, of uh, does, does college begin in kindergarten? It's a function of, you know, box thinking, everyone resting on the assumption that college is, is salvation, right? Peter Till, the atheistic church. Uh, <laughs> all, all those nice memories come back. And just this point that we're wasting our gifts. Now, I have a very controversial idea for you, Luke. Very controversial idea, right? Because we have all this discussion around how would you fix it, what, what would be different. This is Robinson's point. I always have agreed with it. Human flourishing is an organic process. Human flourishing is an organic process. What does that statement mean to you, Luke? It's a tricky one, but I would automatically think of the education system and think you wouldn't require all this structure like sort of if it's organic then it's kind of stumbling around and finding your own way in the world like finding out what you enjoy you know what excites you all those sort of things without having too much structure beautiful do you agree that it is an organic process it's a tricky one. I mean, everything that I've done where I've felt sort of those spiritual 
things we're talking about in the sense that that gives me energy that sort flow of state. flow state all of that is it's like those organic things i've gone after all the those things i've fallen into boom if that boom. I, I feel that's there a bit airy fairy but no no it's not there were doors you opened yeah i've never i've okay yeah that's a good point i've never i've never strategized six months before about feeling that way doing that thing and stumbling the word use the word stumbling before and that's kind of like accurate in the sense of what we're trying to convey but i would say instead of thinking of it as stumbling if people thought of it as journeying mm. as traveling like someone who's excited by the possibilities and open but still heading with an intention to make the most of what comes that day mm instead of a, a not doing the sort of suggestion that you not do. And I wholeheartedly believe that you can go back to the thought leaders we've done before and their thoughts applied to education, the Alan Watts, the Taleb. If you remember Taleb, how to do more by intervening less, that so often we intervene in nature, we ruin things. <laughs> and if you remember Chairman Mao and all that, getting rid of all the sparrows and therefore creating massive famine because the sparrows got rid of the pests that actually the pests did more damage to the crops than the sparrows. It's like <laughs> yeah. intervening, intervening in nature fucks we it don't, up. We don't know the trying implications to stop swearing. as well. We don't know the implications. We don't understand second order effects. Human beings are complex. And when you mess with complex systems, you will never know the results. Mm. So how do you view that organic process or what are your thoughts on that in general you view the organic process by not avoiding challenges for people you support them through them through them you don't create an elaborate daycare system you provide support as they go through the challenge okay and you don't force things on people You wait to see what they're called to do. And when they find something they're called to do, it would be no different if someone was five as if you're doing it now for the podcast with Dom. And then once you see them picking up this thing they play with, they naturally, when they love it, have this desire to improve. And then once they show this desire to improve, you help them improve. And when they, if they're not interested in improving, you leave them alone. The door is here. And you say, but all these people won't do X. All these people won't do Y. And it's like, this is the point. You must let people deal with the consequences of their actions. That will be the teacher. You can warn them, right? You can show them, you know, something like, for example, be intentional right? Don't, don't just sit there, be lazy. But like all we're doing is we create this effect later on down the line. I think right? one of it's, it's not linear. That's the thing. Hmm. What do you think of that? There'd be a few concerns with that train of thought. Oh, exactly. Cause of conditioning. Mm, there'd be a lot of concerns. Cause you're conditioned because of conditioning. A lot of fear. 
a lot of no, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, a lot of fear, a lot of fear. Less than two percent of the people listening to this will agree with me, <laughs> and that's fine. And make your own decisions by all means. This is the thing. I'll read you this quote from Ken. Every educational system in the world is being reformed at the moment, and it's not enough. Reform is no use anymore because that is simply improving a broken model. What we need is not evolution, but a revolution in education. This has to be transformed into something else. Transformed. It is not even... See, people will agree education stuffed, but when they think about solutions, they're not thinking about something that's radical because it's, it's actually on the conditioning level, not a logic level that they're thinking because they're used to this system. They're attached to the things it spits out. They're attached to their commercial world, outcomes, success, prestige, status, house, and they think, how will my kid be able to afford a property? How will my kid be able to afford this? How will my kid impress someone enough to have a wife? Or they're thinking about those things and they're worried about their children. And so they will still be attached to this outline of the current system the way it is, even though they agree that it's not working. And it takes incredible strength to look at it and say, no, it must be transformed. You cannot pull something out without attacking all the things it's connected to. That is why I make so many bloody episodes. For those who are willing to actually go into it, and hopefully they will be able to build on whatever has started. Because you must revolutionize all the things it's attached to. And it's attached to the idea that you must go to college after school at all costs and find a pathway there, otherwise you're stupid. It's attached to the very narrow ideas we have around success that people struggle to touch those. A lot of hate about education. No one talks about the success narratives in our culture. It's attached to, to you know, property is the priority. It's attached to be somewhere when you're 30. It's attached to retirement. This is one big chain. You cannot solve the education problem in a vacuum. It's attached to all these other things, this very outdated way of thinking about life, this very counterintuitive way of thinking about life, which doesn't really serve many, if any, people, if I'm being honest, because the deeper spiritual part of life they're cut off from on this conveyor belt, yet, yet they're all attached to it. So that is why no one would be willing to do it now. And this is not something I will see in my lifetime, I don't think, not in its fullest version, but at some point it will materialize. Not because of logic, but because technology and the environment will, will push it on our systems, our social systems. And then the latent, these latent ideas, which are not just me, and not just you, but it's a lot of people at different stages of the same conclusions. Ken Robinson was clearly there. And then that will rise up to meet it. And then there'll be a bigger breaking point at some point. That's the reality. And people, get, people are attached to it. But a lot of the people who, most people do not look at themselves, you've got to understand, right? Most people do not look at themselves as creative people. Correct? Correct. Right? Do you think most people have gone through life as dreamers? People with big, big, audacious, unrealistic dreams that they wanted to chase. Do you think no. most people have done that? No. No. 
Do you think most people have had a high-quality spiritual life, the deepest sense that you can live? Do you think most people have had a deeply fulfilling life? If I can speak from my own experience and sort of observations, no. Okay. So if we're looking for consensus on how we improve education, you're almost wrong if you find consensus because that is the, the, the brains of those people will think about this, will hear this, and it will be filtered through them. And if you're not a dreamer, if you don't think of yourself as a creative person, and if you've never experienced deeper fulfillment, the sort that we've been denied largely on a societal level for many generations, then why would you think this way? Why would you agree? Well, it's those just... people haven't, those people cannot, and it's no disrespect to them, it's not their fault, but it, they're forbidden from seeing it. You must, you must feel and live those things to see the truth about what education should be. It's just too foreign and concept for people like myself. I still feel myself fighting against that also. For, like if the, the nature of that statement means to the way you just said that means either I am in this conversation an authority figure that you're you don't want to oh, if Joe says it must be true or you are conscious enough to recognize your conditioning pushing in a certain direction and it's going to take time for it to catch up That's, and either could either could be true mm. okay and you might just be respectful because this podcast that I started and you maybe you don't want to challenge it no, no, no. Uh, I can give and you... I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't gone into specifics around a day-to-day, -day, like, you know, complete anarchy is one thing. Not, I wouldn't say it would look like letting children out in the wild and then seeing which ones survive. No, but so I just, mean, yeah, I can give you an example or I can, yeah. yeah, I can give you an example. Like when I say, when I know that I'm enjoying work, for example, it's a distinct feeling and there's certain conditions. When I've engaged in the podcast, that's that's the same set of, that's the same set of feeling and ideas, but like even starting the podcast, that to me seemed like a foreign, like something that people don't do or yes. that it's like, but then it felt the most natural or yes. the, so you're, you're constantly fighting against you are why, fighting why are you doing that? Conditioning. Maybe you, you should be tripling down conditioning. on your job. You don't understand if everyone has gone from the age of five to 18 through this system who gets a voice in society, we do not have the data for what the alternate way would look like. So if you're going to get all those people's minds to think about that thing that conditioned them, it's not actually very reliable. Mm. It's like, it's like getting everyone it's like giving everyone red glasses at the age of five and they only live with red glasses on and they look at everything with this, with this color red and you ask them to, you know, you ask them to look at a painting and asking them how to improve it. It's like, uh, I don't know. Right. So to finish on the remarkable ideas and I hope that this podcast series can just be one thing to you know, there's that quote, stand on the shoulders of the giants. Ken Robinson, to me, was a giant. I feel very, like, connected to his work. It was a very big inspiration for me. It was a very big validation for me. And I hope that this can just do him a little bit of justice. There are so many people continuing his work. And I'll finish with the 
a verse from William Butler Yeats that he read at the end of this TED talk when he gave a final kind of call to action about dreams. And this was written to Maud Gone by Yeats, the poet, bewailing the fact he couldn't really give her what she wanted. And he wrote this, which Robertson reads out in the, in the TED talk. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths on wrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. His final warning in that talk is to tread softly. We tread on the dreams of our children. Thank you very much for joining me in this series, Loke. Next, we'll unpack the great Charlie Munger, someone I know you love and channel sometimes. <laughs> and I look forward to that. A reminder to anyone listening, the link Everything Joe has, has an opportunity to sign up to the Doorman newsletter. You get this summary of the podcast once a week, just distilled simple instead of every episode. And, yeah, I look forward to continuing this journey. Thanks again, Luke. Thank you, Joe.